1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're visiting, there are sermon notes, you want to pull those out this morning, we have a great opportunity to study a very difficult text. We're in chapter 7, and we're coming to verses 17 to 24, and the, the Apostle Paul is going to make a theological point that is rarely taught. I, I don't know, you know how many lessons I've heard on this um, I think there have been few and far between in my 30-some years of being a Christian. If any of you have heard a passage taught on this, I'd be curious afterwards. You can say, oh, yeah, I remember someone's come up and taught this. This is a passage, though, that, that I think has a great application. I think because of its difficulty, it's not often taught. That's why. I think people will shy away from things that are difficult. Let me read the text. And the text, and Brian, if you could put up on the screen while I'm doing that. The, the first slide, it says in verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, the theme is, is keep the status quo. If you have your sermon notes, now that you're a believer... Do not think that you have to change your status. And I want to bring some theological points to mind as we go through this. And I want you to understand that this deals with a lot of motivation and, and, and the spiritual motivation behind decisions you make, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about keeping the status quo. And there's going to be three areas of status that are used in this passage. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about the culture, and we're going to talk about our vacation, whether, you know, looking at it in our day and age, being, uh, you know, the jobs we do, but being free versus um, being uh, a slave. And we're going to talk about that. And so I wrote down, if you hear this theme and say, I, I never um, can get married or I can never change jobs, then that's not what this passage is saying when it says keep the status quo. It is saying never change to improve your relationship with God because I point out that in the context there is instruction on getting married and getting divorced and we'll see that where people do change their status but there's going to be spiritual wisdom behind you changing your status Um, and there is in people who change their jobs. So at the same time what I want to do because you know you think wait a second where in the world this spiritual concept of keeping the status quo what's going on here? Well I want us to understand um, that, yes, that there's a couple spiritual truths that are behind this text. So let me give you these three. You might take your sermon notes, put them them behind you. Number one is, is that when we understand this, your status of what you do or don't do does not change your relationship to God. 
And what, what I want to make this understood is why this is so critical is I put this quote from Hebrews chapter 9 about the covenant of grace. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal life. Jesus Christ is my insur- insurance agent. He's the one who paid the price. He's the one that covers me. Why I want to say this is because, you know, going back to the previous slide, not changing your job, now that you become a believer, not changing whether you get married or not, not changing your vocation, is that God wants you to understand that, first and foremost, if you change to get closer to God, you'd be making a mistake. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're close to God. And so somebody can say, oh, I became a believer. Maybe I should become a pastor because I can become close to God. Well, you don't need to do that. You don't need to change your job. And we're going to see how it applies to marriage too. Second, there's the truth that God is more concerned about your obedience than the comfort in your status. What we're going to see as we go through this passage is that God really does want us to understand that God is more concerned about you being obedient than how it fits into where you're at in a situation. For example, you can become a believer, and we're going to talk about that, in a situation where maybe you were in a tough situation in a marriage, and you say, well, now I just want to get out because now I'm a believer. God is more concerned about you being obedient within that marriage than you getting out of that marriage. And then number three, the truth is that we're going to see as we go through this is that Jesus Christ came to change hearts before he changed your status in society. And so what is this principle about? Well, the reality of it is, is when Jesus Christ came, he did all these great miracles and he did all these wonderful things, but he didn't turn society upside down. Yes, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. Yes, the Jews would have loved to make him king. Like in John chapter 6, where he fed the 5,000, and the people realize, oh my goodness, this guy can continue to give us all kinds of food. Why don't we make him king? And it's more, one of the more hilarious stories in all the Bible, where Jesus runs across the lake, and they, maybe up to 20,000 people chase him down, and they want to make him king. Well, didn't Jesus come to become king? But what does John chapter 6 teach us? That Jesus Christ came to be one that changes people's hearts before he changed society. Yeah, Jesus Christ doesn't want slavery. Yeah, Jesus Christ doesn't want poverty. He doesn't want people to be manipulated and stuff like that. He doesn't want people in bad marriages. He doesn't want all of that. But he wants us first and foremost to come to him and have our hearts changed. And, and so if I go back and I look at these, I just want you to understand what he's saying is don't change your status because you're not going to get closer to God because of you changing you know your job or your marriage he doesn't want you to think that that boy he's more concerned about comfort in the sense of boy now that you've become a believer everything should be pie in the sky and you say why am i stuck in this bad job or why am i stuck in this bad marriage well god wants maybe you to be a testimony and so he wants you to understand when jesus christ came the first time and he's still on this he came to change hearts And so that's why the picture is there. He wants a new heart. He wants the evil thoughts, the fornications, and the murders to be broken out. He wants a new heart. And so here is these three character traits that I want you to understand. If we're going to understand this passage, this passage that I think a lot of people avoid, a lot of people struggle with, and I say to myself, well, what is really going on in this 
passage is that, is that, um, can't get my paper to turn. Look at this. <sighs> okay. Um, is that, number one, is that I believe if we're going to deal with keeping the status quo, that God wants us to recognize that he wants us content no matter what. No matter what situation we're in, whatever marriage we're in, whatever job we're in, whatever situation. And perhaps one of the greatest texts in all the scriptures in the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord always. And he tells us in chapter 4 that he learned to be content in whatever circumstance that he was in. And, and that is underlying this passage. There's a spiritual truth, okay, that if I understand that I'm now this changed person and God is more concerned about my spiritual condition more than my ease, he wants me to have this truth down. He wants me to have this character trait, to be content no matter what. And I want to challenge you, like right now, if you were to say to yourself, are you a content person? Would people say that you're a content individual? That is a challenge because the world recognizes that most people aren't content. Most people aren't happy. Most people aren't at peace where they're at. And, and so when, look, when you look at verse 17 and it says, only as the Lord assigned each as one God has called each in this manner, let him walk. God is saying, keep the status quo and he wants you to be content. And as I was preparing for this message, I came across this story, and it was a worldly story. It dealt with a magician and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, wow, this really teaches a contentment, but it's not biblical. But then I thought to myself, the reason this was a prominent story is because the world recognizes, and I went, when you listen to the story, the world recognizes that most people aren't content. And this story goes like this. It's a it's a made up, I don't know how it came about, but it it's the, deals with the king, and the king gets a disease, and he's, he, he's dying, and he realizes he can't, he can't get a cure. And the magician comes to him, the king's magician comes to him and says, King, you know, I've got this incantation, and we know that we can cure you. But the, what it takes is you've got to take water from the river, and you've got to take the shirt of a content man to dip into the water, and then to wipe yourself down. So the king says, great, let's find a content man. So they search the kingdom to find a content man. And so he sends out all of his people searching high and low, find a content man. And you know what? They find one. And when they find him, there was a problem. The guy doesn't have a shirt because he is so content he doesn't worry. Okay? So, so the, the point is, is that the world recognizes this, God is calling you and I to be different. And so if we're going through this passage and it deals with the status quo, and especially in those three areas, then we need to be people who are content. Second, character trait. Be willing to suffer for God's purpose. No pain, no gain. I know I really questioned whether to put up a photo of myself, and I decided, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So, all right. So, you know, don't want, you know... You have to show, tell Becky she's gone today. But uh, listen, listen to this. This is a trait that you need to understand that Christianity really does call us some, to suffer. And when you think about this principle, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that is used by Jesus when he's, quoted, he's quoting Deuteronomy in, 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 in his temptation what did Jesus get led to do? God led Jesus to go into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. Now, I'm not saying 
that we're going to have to be led to be 40 days. But what it is is if you come to a situation and you know the right thing to do, Jesus was led specifically, don't eat. And the temptation and the test was don't eat because I don't want you to eat until I tell you to. That's, what's God, that's the essence of what God the Father was telling God the Son. And, and Satan comes and says, turn those rocks into stone. But Jesus says, like, no, man doesn't live on bread alone. If God wants me to die, if God wants me to die in serving him, then that's exactly what I will do. Now, you look at the Bible, Daniel's thrown in the lion den, and the idea of it's so better to obey than to sacrifice. And what I want you to really think about is like last week, our Resurrection Sunday service, we talked about the fact that 11 out of the, well, 11 out of those 11 disciples all give their life for God. John, they tried to kill John. The other, they couldn't. And then the others, 10 do. They all do get killed for Jesus. Listen, I want you to challenge yourself. Are you someone that is always avoiding the hard things? Because God does call us to suffer. And then third, all right? We've been talking about this. Glorify God in your body. Look at the last line of chapter 6. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And we've been talking about this, especially in the realm of sexual sin, sexual perversion. And as we go into the context of our chapter, remember, chapter 7 is primarily about marriage. It's dealing with singleness, and it's dealing with divorce and remarriage. And you say, why then does this passage come into the context of staying with the status quo it's because it does it does deal with you glorifying your body and we'll see that as we go in so we're going to just get through one part of it today and so let's let's jump into it um here we go the very first thing is do not change your status as a general rule especially in marriage there's the two to fill in the blank verse 17 only as the lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk so I, so, as so I direct in all the churches. And what you have here is the Apostle Paul has been talking about marriage. You look at the fact he's been given a series of instructions. If you go back to verses 15 through 16, he's talking about if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you can go ahead and get a divorce and you're fully free to remarry. Look at verse 15. Yet if, if the one if the unbelieving one leaves, verse 15 says, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, verse 16 says, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And we said, you don't know. If they come to the point and you're a believer and you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, let them leave. Now, it's in this context of divorce, remarriage, and, and, and the issues of do I get married or not? Because that's going to flow. He comes in with verse 17. But only as the Lord has assigned. And so that only is like transitioned. And it, he begins to say, give us a set of instructions for keeping the status quo. And he says, only as the Lord has assigned. And that word to assign means to a lot, to put into position. And here it comes up with the idea of God's sovereignty. So that when you... When you recognize God is sovereign, he has put you in a situation. He's put you in a position so that when you got saved and all of a sudden you were, you're saved and you're married to an unbeliever, 
How did that happen? Was that an accident? Or I, I was saved and I was in this job. Um, you know, should I stay in this job? Now, if you were in a job and you're a thief, if you're a job and you're doing something totally improper, then you get out of that job. Absolutely. But, you know, how do you know that God hasn't called you because, you know, maybe you were in a position, maybe you're working in a factory, maybe you're working in a situation where nobody else is going to reach these people. God gets you saved, and instead of you leaving that situation, God wants you to stay in that situation. But I also want you to see, I, I, you know, if we start thinking, wait a second, God called me while I was single, therefore, you know, I can never get married. This is where spiritual wisdom and discernment takes place. Because God is talking this about this as like a general rule, not looking for this to be an excuse for you to run out and get, to get divorced. Because he is telling you, like, if, eventually if you do want to get married, you can. Because look, um, look up at verse, um, verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released, all right? Are you released from a wife? Do not, do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. So there's going to be continuation, I think, a little bit of this concept of... of keeping the status quo, but the wisdom of making a decision that if you go ahead and get married, you have not sinned. So how does that play out? Well, we're going to let, we'll move forward. We'll, we'll break it out even more. So verse 17, if the unbelief, verse 17 says only as the Lord, so Lord, we believe that's Jesus Christ and God who's in charge of the church, who's individually given out the spiritual gifts. We're going to learn about that in chapter um, 11, the one who's in charge of the church, if he sovereignly recognizes that you have been assigned to a certain position, you're to, what, verse 17, as the Lord has, has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And that is the present tense, let him walk, that's a command. And it's interesting, in this section, there are eight commands, eight commands, and the key ones, I want you to look in verse 17 is, let him walk, down in verse 20, let each man remain, and then in verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain, stay with it. So walk, remain, remain. And the idea of the walk is the pattern of your life. Each one is to stay with the pattern for which they were called. And the word called there is a deep theological concept, Okay. It is one that you, you, you have to study it and understand that there is what is called the general call. Many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22, all right? And that's the fact that many, everybody's invited. We call that the general call, that we go out and we tell people, we proclaim the gospel, we want everyone to believe. But there is also what is called the effectual call, that when you became a believer, and you have to look and say, well, which one's being talked about, like, and I believe that's, that is the effectual call that Paul talked about earlier in chapter 1 when he talked about, um, where is it? Let me look in chapter 1. Um, he talks about the fact that they were called and that they, they've become believers. And where is it? I don't see it, but um, I'll find it. Okay, if you go back to chapter, go back to chapter one. Um, it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, the Apostle Paul says, "For since in the wisdom of of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. So we're talking about people who are saved. And he says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, not like called in a general sense, but to those who get this effectual invite, effectual in the sense it's changed them. To those who are called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, this word called is used eight or, eight or nine times, nine, I think it's nine times, in verses 17 to 24. So if you go back there to chapter 7, and I want you to understand that eight of the nine, I think I forgot the numbers right, eight of the nine deal with being effectively saved. And the other one will be dealing with your vocation, your job, and we'll catch that as we move forward. So what, why, what, what is, what is, why is this so important to understand is because God takes verses 17 to 24 to get people, I believe, to have peace with their situations and to not freak out and all of a sudden to do something really, really drastic. And let me just give you two illustrations, okay? All right. So let's say you're, you're, you've got two unsafe people. They're married. And they're pretty wild. They drink, they party, they do all kinds of immoral things. They, 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 they watch maybe improper movies and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, one of the spouses gets saved. And, and now you've got a safe spouse and you have an unsafe spouse. And God says to the safe spouse, yes, you've got a spouse that is going to still perhaps drink. Maybe they're still going to watch improper things. Maybe at times they're still going to do some bad things. But to the extent that they're not going out and having affairs and stuff like that, I want you to stay married to them. And you're saying, let me pull my hair out. This is crazy. I've got to deal with this spouse that's drinking. I've got to deal with this spouse that's swearing. I've got to deal with this spouse that is, is doing these other improper things. God says, yes, I want you to be someone that as long as that unbelieving spouse wants to stay with you, you're to be a witness to him. You're to sanctify the children. We saw that earlier. So that's what God wants you to do. And you can see, from what we understand, this was a major, major concern. Remember, the book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with corrections and keeping the people humble. And the people need to say, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I'm so great. And therefore, the, you know, I, I should only have the best. They should only have the best marriage. God is saying no. Or the best job. Because it's dealing with whether you're a slave or not a slave. And God is saying, look, I'm not concerned about society. I kept slavery in. And remember, 50% of the world is slaves at this time. This is how the general concept of the economy was working. And God is saying, I want you to stay in those positions. So the first illustration I gave you was two unsafe people. And one of them gets saved. God says, stay together. But what about if you're a single person and all of a sudden you get saved and, and now you're saying, do I get married or not get married? But the thought was maybe some of them were looking around and saying, hey, the church really emphasizes marriage. I'm just going to run into a marriage and I'm going to get married to anybody that comes through the door. God is saying, no, use a little wisdom and discernment. You don't have to get married. I think that's part of the, 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 you know, the balance and the wisdom of how this is going to play out. So both of those are good examples, and we're going to get into more of them as we work through the entire chapter. But look at how verse 17 ends, because it's so easy to miss. And it's a doctrine that is easily missed. 
Because he says, and so I direct in all the churches. And it's sort of like this is a parenthesis. And what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, this is the, these are the rules for the churches. And I got to tell you, this is really, really critical. Let me just show you the, this concept over and over and over is something that God wants the church to recognize that, that he that he wants people to understand, he wants all the churches to be run the same way. And, and I know that's really crazy, because I remember when I came here 22 years ago, somebody came up to me and said, you know, God doesn't talk about church government. God doesn't talk about the way such and such gets done. And I said, wait a second, you better believe he does. He, he, you know, he, he does talk about church government. He does talk about the way certain things are done. And so, like, look at how often the Apostle Paul will emphasize, I want all churches to be thinking the same. So go back to chapter 4. In, in chapter 4, verse 17, as they were dealing with how people get saved, and, and it's the gospel that changes people, and, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent you to Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ." Just as I teach everywhere in every church. It's so critical that you don't want to see the church at Corinth got one set of rules and the church at Ephesus got another and the church at Philippi got another. The church at Hammond gets one and the church in Indianapolis gets another set. No, God has set his ways, his principles in every place. But this isn't the only place that this is emphasized. It must have been something like the Apostle Paul and God knew people needed to hear this. So just jump over to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And I tell you, when we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 11, I, I have spent so many hours on this passage. So many hours because it deals with head covering and length of hair. And people have tried to say, oh, this is just cultural. Well, I'm giving you a little hint. There are like seven or eight appeals to creation in this passage. And like, what, why would you appeal to creation if it was something cultural? So we'll see how that applies out. But when you get down to verse 17, he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you, um, is it verse 17? Oh, verse, verse 16, I need to get the one before this. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practices, no other practice, nor have the churches of God. There's no other way, no other way the churches to practice this. How much more explicit can you say something? You know, oh, it's perfectly fine that these people baptize infants. No, it's not. It's perfectly fine that this church, you know, has women elders. No, it's not. It's, it, you know, you look at how important the word of God is to drive the church. And there are other places in Corinth, the letter to the Corinthians he mentions, but go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll just get one more verse. And I want you to see this is from the first book, from the pastoral epistles, that the Apostle Paul was writing Timothy, and he was writing Titus, and First and Second Timothy and Titus, how the church needs to be conducted, how things need to be done. And so in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and verse 14 says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's the church, God's house. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. And we've been studying this on Wednesday night and, and the idea of truth, the actual concept of reality and what God wants and we're to be sanctified in truth. The church has truth and it's not to be arbitrarily applied. And, you know, somebody says, you know, we're going to do it this way and we're going to do it that way. Well, obviously, I understand there are aspects of differences of opinion, but the goal should be to pursue truth. And there is one truth. And, and so with that in mind... Go back to 1 Corinthians, if you will, and just have that mindset. It is our passion, our desire here at, at Christian Fellowship Church to know truth and to always search out the truth and to pursue truth and to recognize that God wants his church conducted his way. And, you know, one of the things that always attracted to me when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ, and I know that I went through that process where all of a sudden you start reading the Bible and you say, wait a second, you know, there's no priest in the Bible for a New Testament church today. No, why? Because priests are intercessors. We don't need that. We get to go directly to God. What do you mean we don't, we don't um, baptize our infants? Well, right, it's not in the scripture. You know, all of those aspects where you start recognizing the Bible needs to drive everything that we do. And where there's clarity in the scripture, it's, it's pretty much, um, I think, often very easy to discern. But that's, that's just a different, you know, I don't want to keep going down that path. But look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. So don't change your status as a general rule, especially in marriage. What I want you to understand as we wrap up today is be discerning about the status quo. I want you to understand if the Apostle Paul is going to be telling us this principle and getting us to understand, hey, you don't have to rush and change anything. Does that mean that we should never change anything, though? And I wrote, I found this old um, narrative about when um, let me see, who was it? Yeah, William Carey was going off to be a missionary in East India. And it says this, um, the man wrote, Once I stood in Carey's chapel in Calcutta, listening to the pastor retell the courageous life of the noble pioneer. And, you know, William Carey turned India upside down. Um, he goes, as never before, his life took on new light for me. But have Christians forgotten, he says, in 1789, when William Carey announced he was going as a missionary to India, the East India Company vigorously protested. It was considered imprudent. An idealistic missionary might jeopardize the high profits of their investments, and every generation has had its Sadducees, guardians of the status quo, coiners of the um, temple tax, who persist in protecting their vested investments and don't want to change things. And then with the concept that the church didn't want to change things. So I want you to grasp as we're going through this chapter that when do you change, when do you don't change? There's going to have to be wisdom and discernment and everything's not going to be easily boxed in. What we want to know, what we want to get is to remember this. Let's remember these three truths. Your status doesn't change your relationship to God. God is more concerned about your obedience than the comfort of your status. And Jesus came to change hearts before he changed your status in society. How critical it is you get this. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have to recognize you've got a relationship that is close as anybody. Like 
as a pastor, one of the things that sometimes frustrates me is like people say, well, you pray for me, pastor, because, you know, God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers just as much as he hears mine. And, and some of us, well, I recognize you can say, I'm in a tough situation, but God wants you to be obedient more than you getting out of your tough situation. And we also have to just remember this. God wants us content, so therefore be content no matter where you're at. Suffer for God's purpose. Be someone that does the hard things and glorify God in your body. When you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the great thing that you have going for you is that you know that their time on this earth is very short. And, and it passes really quickly. Um, <laughs> I can leave you with this. A, a Puritan sat down to his meal and found out that he only had a little bread and some water. And his response was to proclaim, what, all this in Jesus too? And I think that we all must remember that principle, number one, the trait, that contentment is to be content no matter what you face. We were destined for hell. We were people who were going to be sent into an eternal punishment. But God saved us. And he knew exactly where he had put you. He knew where you were assigned. He knew the lifestyle you got. And he doesn't need you, as we're going to see, to change things radically. He wants you right where you're at. Be faithful where you're at. Be a light where you're at. Tell the world about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that we have in Jesus. Life is hard, and sometimes in America, because we have TV and we have movies, we can see how other people have it so easy, sometimes so much nicer, and it can bring about a jealousy in us. And we can always think, boy, because now we know what other people are doing, whether it's through a social uh, internet application, we can say, boy, their lives, they've got it all together, and I want to have that. But Father, the reality of it is, is you're sovereign over every individual. And I don't know where you've taken everyone because every person here has their own relationship, their own path. And the 24-7 they spend with you is something that is special between you and them. Oh God, I pray for every person here that first and foremost, because they have a relationship with you, that they would have the contentment and the peace to know that you're sovereign. For I know in contentment, sovereignty plays a big role. But I know, God, if somebody doesn't know you, they lack contentment, they lack that peace, help them to think through life and death matters. Help them to realize that they just need to turn and believe. And if someone here today hasn't had that relationship, that they would just call out and say, God, I want faith. Give me faith. I don't want to trust in my baptism. I don't want to trust in my good works, my attendance, whatever family I'm a part of. I just want to call out, I need help, God. And I pray that everyone here will just continue to turn in faith to Jesus. But Father, in the meantime, how I just do pray that we as believers are people that do the hard things no matter what we face. And we are people here to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.